As I look back over my very brief little life, I see an enormous change that has come over people in these few years, and really 84 is not that long. I have seen a consciousness, especially while lecturing in public, that there's much more interest in spirituality than there was when I was young. The um, crowds that have come that have inter been interested in learning how to change themselves, learning how to change uh, for the better, these are things that a few years ago only you found it was not so. When Master first came to this country, yes, he had an enormous success, but that was because he brought something new and very powerful. And at the same time, the people in those days, well, I remember when I went to church. I hope that uh, fellow Episcopalians will not take offense if I state that I think that was the deadest church there was. I found no inspiration there, and I found everybody was trying to just do the proper thing. But I used to feel that there is no, no inspiration in this. There, what the, I remember the minister keeps shouting about how we didn't if we didn't do so and so we'd end up right in the lap of the Nazis. What kind of talk is that? The uh, Catholic churches that I attended sometimes, I got long stirring messages on how much I should donate to the bloody church. There was just money and power and um, the proper thing to do. And I have to say that my own search for truth led me to desperation. I didn't see anything that was inspiring me to think that here is the truth I'm looking for. And when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, it absolutely changed my life. It's very strange because I had never read Indian philosophy before. I didn't know anything about Indian philosophy. I suppose I knew it existed, but that's as far as I went. And uh, I remember if my approach had been more through devotion, which I wish it had been, I might have gone straight to the mark. But instead, I got there through reason. But I remember I was always trying to think, how can I improve on the world? How can the world be improved upon? And I realized that always, whether it was science or art or politics or anything that I could name, Everything was a dead end. Nothing showed me a way to really improve the world or the human lot. And I had never really been sure. My church had inspired me to doubt whether God even existed, if you can call that inspiration. <laughs> <clears throat> but I remember one night, I, I began thinking that 
every single worthwhile change in history has been brought about by spiritual means. All the real changes have been through Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, etc. All the real changes have been in people's faith, in life, in themselves, and in God. And finally, I went out one night, <clears throat> took a long walk, and I thought to myself, well, if there's a God, I don't know if there is a God, but if there is a God, <coughs> what must he be like? And I realized that he had to be consciousness. He couldn't be just a judge up there. That didn't make any sense at all. What kind of a God? I mean, let's face it. God puts in our way every possibility of doing wrong, every temptation to do wrong. Why should he get angry with us if we do wrong? <laughs> it's just not fair. But I did realize that there had to be some kind of purpose to it all. And that that purpose had to be based on the very fact that I was able to ask this question. If I can ask, is there a God? If I can ask what that God must be like, then it's because I'm conscious. And the degree to which I am conscious, he must be much more conscious. And I reached the point in this long walk that I took outside Charleston, South Carolina, I realized that really there can only be one reality, and that is consciousness. And that, that consciousness has to be a part of what we are, or I should say rather we have to be a part of what that is. And I decided then and there that if there is a God who is conscious, and if my consciousness is a part of his consciousness, then my duty in life is to be closer to that consciousness. And I realized that there were times when I was closer and times when I was farther away. But when I was closer, I was more aware. And when I was farther away, for example, if I had, I had something to drink, I was farther away. And I realized then that if this is the case, then the purpose of life has to be to become more aware and to know God. And in that discovery, which to me was earth-shaking, I had never understood these things, never really even thought about them. I had been seeking truth, but I had sought truth in facts, the way most Americans do. And I realized that it had to be based finally on that simple word, consciousness. And in that one evening's walk, I have to say that I evolved the essence of the entire Vedanta philosophy of India. How I came upon it, I don't know. Reason led me to it as the unavoidable, inescapable reality that we are all seeking. I didn't know Hinduism. I didn't know Vedanta. I didn't know nothing. <laughs> and yet, I decided that 
yes, there has to be a God, and therefore my whole purpose in life has to be to find that God. And I remember coming back to my apartment late that night after this long walk, and I was just in a state of dazed because it was so amazing to me to have had these thoughts. And I, I had four roommates at the time, and they were all gathered in the kitchen having coffee and laughing and joking. And uh, I listened to them, and I thought, these are just yapping puppies. And they were laughing at me for always taking life so seriously and so on. Well, I thought if life is serious, why not take it seriously? And if it's not serious, why not shoot ourselves? <laughs> there has to be a purpose to it all. And I remember they were all sort of mocking at me and saying life is such a simple thing. All you have to do is get drunk occasionally and have fun and shack up with some girl if you get a chance to. And that's all it's about. And I thought, what fools. And I remember going to my room and I think, was thinking, this is not life, it's death. And I began seriously from that moment on to try to seek God. But the trouble is that it's not so easy to find God. I didn't know where to begin. I, I uh, couldn't pick up a stone and find him there. I figured it had to deal something to do with my own self-perfection. But to perfect myself, how could I do it? It was like washing a dirty shirt. You sort of get a bubble here, you try to push the bubble down, it comes up over here. And I had tried to work on one fault, only to have another fault, um, which I wasn't working on, get worse. And it became, I became a, it became a matter of desperation to me. Until finally I began to worry. Now mind you, I was coming from, you might say spiritually speaking, total ignorance because my church had turned me away from those truths, not toward them. And I thought, am I going crazy? Have I ever heard of anybody in history ever seeking God? No, I had not. I knew nothing about the lives of saints. I thought, well, uh, is this something any sane person would do? I thought, well, surely not. And yet I had also to say that it was the only thing I could do. There was nothing else that made any sense to me. And for a while I thought, oh, well, what I need to do is get off in the country. I've been living in the cities. I've been living too um, much a life of, of uh, uh, sophistication and intellectuality and so on. In fact, I was much too intellectual. That's why I said if I had gone through the heart, I'd have reached there quickly. But going through the intellect, it caused many, many problems. And I remember thinking, well, maybe what I need to do is go out in the country among simple country people. I had a good lesson in what simple country people are all about. Never did I meet so, much, so many fools as in the country where all they thought about was food and diet and making fun of each other. And I thought, this is not the answer. What can I do? My father was already in Egypt. 
He had been posted there by his oil company. He was with Esso. And my mother was to join him. And my mother, too, expressed great concern what would become of me, because I didn't seem to be going anywhere. And I myself didn't think I was going anywhere. But I felt that even if I have to go crazy, I must find God. And the day that I put mother on the ship to go join my father in Egypt, that very day I walked uptown New York, I had learned this much about Vedanta philosophy that it existed. I had learned, somebody had told me that you ought to read the Bhagavad Gita. I didn't know what the Bhagavad Gita was, but he said it's a Hindu scripture. And somehow that name lingered in my mind, maybe from past memories, who knows. But I decided that I had to learn something about this. And I went to Double Day Duran, is what it was called in those days. And I came upon the Gita and immediately bought it. And I saw Autobiography of a Yogi. And the face on that cover very greatly attracted me. It was like an old friend. And then, I have to admit, with all my doubting, which was my great problem, doubting this, doubting that, finally, fortunately, it led me in the right direction. But I read, dedicated to Luther Burbank, an American saint. I thought, this is absolutely nonsense. How could there be an American saint? I had grown up in big business. Esso was the biggest company in the world at that time. I was familiar with that world, and I thought that cannot be the answer to anything. And when I read Dedicated to Luther Burbank, an American saint, I thought, oh, nonsense. I put the book down. I bought the Bhagavad Gita. I had a little room that I had rented in Scarsdale in a private home, and there I read the Bhagavad Gita. Well, it was absolutely thrilling, and I was so eager to <coughs> know more about this. Well, I had been trying. Mind you, I'm putting these things in a bit of a skewed way because I myself was skewed. But with all this thinking, my thought had turned seriously to becoming a hermit for the rest of my life. I didn't know what a hermit did. I didn't know what a hermit, how he lived, how he ate, how he prayed. I didn't know anything. But I figured if this is the goal of life is to find God, then I have to be a hermit. And I, that's again when I thought, well, I must be going crazy. Who ever heard of anybody doing this kind of thing? Well, anyway, I read, I had read that um, Gita, and I had decided that maybe if I could save enough money, I would be able to go to South America, maybe Brazil, where they have nice, dense jungles, and I could go out in the jungle and uh, spend my life meditating. I didn't know how I'd eat. I didn't know how I'd, I didn't know anything. I was, really, you can say that I probably was going crazy because there didn't seem to be any practical way of doing 
what I wanted to do. But I thought maybe if I get a job with the Merchant Marine, I can get save money. I'll never have a chance to spend it because I'll be out at sea. And I'll be able to save money, and it's good money. And with that money, maybe I would be able to go to South America and devote the rest of my life to seeking God. And uh, I remember coming into town to go down to Bowling Green, where the ships would, I could find out if a ship had come in for me. And as I was approaching, I was on 7th Avenue, and I was approaching a corner to cross the corner and take the subway down to Bowling Green, when all of a sudden I thought of autobiography of a yogi again. And it came to my mind with great insistence. But I thought, oh, American yogi, saint, nonsense. And I decided, no, I've, I'm too intellectual. I've bought too many books. I read too many books. I've got to stop reading. I've got to stop spending my money. If I'm going to go to live in Brazil in the jungles, I've got to save my money, not spend it. So every rational argument I could bring to bear led me to completely reject autobiography of a yogi. And I reached the corner on the opposite side of which was the subway that was to take me down to Bowling Green. When, and I swear this is the truth, I started toward the corner and found my, my steps being directed left toward Fifth Avenue and Double Dater and I said, I didn't make this decision. What has forced me in this direction? And I became quite excited. I began to realize that there's a force beyond what we ourselves think of. I had made up my mind not to turn left. Instead, there I was turning left. It was as if a wind was pushing me. And so then I became quite excited. And I went to Double Day, and I bought that book. And there I met Doug Birch, who was a classmate of mine in high school. Um, I, we were already out of high school, but we were old friends. And uh, so he was talking to me with great excitement about the career he would have in radio and advertising and everything. And the more he talked, the more I clutched this book to my heart, feeling that I had finally found a friend. I, had never, I hadn't read a word of the book except that dedication. And yet somehow I felt that this was the truest friend I had ever had. And I took that book home with me, and I read it really, virtually speaking, nonstop. I did take time to sleep, but I was absolutely, from page one, captivated by the vibrations of that book. I didn't know words like vibration. In fact, I didn't know nothing. But an interesting thing was that the attitude that Master, it was more than the stories that he told. In fact, I had been totally opposed to miracles when my mother tried to talk to me about the miracles that saints have performed. I'd say, oh, come off it, Mother. And I just wouldn't even listen to such nonsense. But the it wasn't the miracles 
In fact, when I came upon page 8 and Lionel Mahoshai materialized in a wheat field, my first thought would have been to throw the book out the window. But there was something so absolutely charming about Yogananda's attitude toward everything. It was so full of joy. It was so full of love and kindness and humility that really, you might say, from the first sentence, he captivated me. And I read that book between tears of laughter and tears of even greater joy, and it was a total transformation. I had never even thought of being a vegetarian, and well, one time I had thought about it because I saw an ad saying these great men were vegetarian, and I thought, is it possible to live without meat? To me, a balanced meal was a hamburger with a white bun and a thin sliver of a tomato and a thinner piece of lettuce, and that was a balanced meal. And when I read Yogananda didn't eat meat, immediately I gave up eating meat. And I never had any desire for it again. I remember that same night friends of ours um, invited me to dinner because, of course, they were a little concerned for me with my parents overseas and me at loose ends. And uh, so they gave me chicken a la king. Well, I didn't know quite what to do with that because there were vegetables mixed up with the chicken, but I decided, okay, I'd compromise, and I pushed all the chicken aside and just ate the vegetables. And the next night, another family invited me to their home for the same reason, and they gave me hamburger. Well, I just said no. And not only that, but my my uh, uh, my reading showed me that Yogananda had become a monk. And I thought, well, if he was a monk, I'll be a monk. And this uh, friend of mine had thoughtfully provided me with a di with a date for that evening. So hamburger date. <laughs> <laughs> I sat as far away from her as I could on the couch, and I just wouldn't eat the hamburger, and they must have thought I was a very strange fellow. But my mind was absolutely made up, and the next day, virtually, I can't say definitely because time is a bit blurred after all these years, but it seemed like the next bus I took from New York to California. And I remember as I was crossing the country, I, I, there were two things I wanted. I wanted to find God, and I knew I had never thought that I would ever listen to anybody. Not that I was that arrogant. It was more that I never found anybody worth listening to. Nobody seemed to have what I wanted. They didn't have wisdom. They didn't seem to know what life is all about. They always used to say, well, just live a proper life and you'll be happy. And I looked around me and I said, if this is happiness, I don't want it. But when I went across the country, I had two desires. One was this intense desire to know God, to find God, and to find him through a man, another human being like myself, and yet so much unlike myself that I was absolutely staggered by his greatness. 
And the other strong desire that I had as I was crossing the country by bus was that this is such a wonderful teaching. I want everybody in the world to know about it. And when I met him, well, it was a very interesting experience because, first of all, I didn't know that, uh, I, uh, mind you, the changes in autobiography of a yogi from then until now have been huge. There are over a thousand references to Self-Realization Fellowship as an organization in the present day editions. They call them reprints. They aren't reprints. They're new editions. And when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, it didn't clearly get across to me that he even had an organization. I knew he had some little thing in Encinitas, but that was all I knew. And I had the good fortune and the blessing to meet Sisyganamata at that time. And she told me that Master was lecturing up in Hollywood. Well, mind you, I was from New York. Hollywood to me meant movies. And I said, you mean I have a church in Hollywood? And uh, she looked at me as if, how could you be so stupid as not to know that a big city like Hollywood would have a church? So anyway, I, I remember I got, uh, first of all, I was angry at her for her presumption, her presumption, <laughs> at telling me that I couldn't even join without taking his lessons, and I'd never even heard of lessons. I knew nothing. No, I hadn't written before, and I had just hopped on the bus and come with full beamish expectation of being accepted. And uh, when I got to the Hollywood Church, the service was long over, and Master was still there giving a few interviews. And Mary Hamilton, her name was, she was the receptionist or secretary, whatever you want to call her. And she said, oh, you couldn't possibly see him today. His appointments are fully booked. And I was just heartbroken. First, I'd come all the way to Encinitas to be told that I couldn't begin to uh, think of joining them without first studying their lessons, which I hadn't even known existed. Secondly, I couldn't even see the man for that day. And I said, well, how long will it be before I can see him? She said, well, his appointments are booked solid for two months. And I thought, oh, it was a crushing blow to me. I suppose I needed to learn humility because somehow in my life, everything I had ever wanted, I just had to want it and it came to me. And I thought, well, surely this door will open too. The only door that had ever meant anything to me was slammed shut in my face and I didn't know what to do. I had a little bit of money, but not very much. I decided that, all right, maybe I wasn't ready. This was a novel thought to me. The thought that I could not be ready. I, I couldn't imagine not being ready. Whatever I wanted, I was ready for it. <laughs> well, it didn't seem to work like that. And I remember walking out the church and thinking, all right, if I'm not ready, I'll just go get a, I'll get a job somewhere and come to church and wait until I can see him. Well, I guess I needed that lesson in humility, whatever it was, 
But just as I reached the door to leave the church, Mary Hammond came up from behind me, and she said, Well, since you've come such a distance, I will ask Master if he will see you. He had finished his, re his appointments. He was ready to leave. And the word came back that, yes, he would see me. So um, I got to go in, and... Uh, People ask me, what was my impression of him? I have to tell you the truth. I had no impression of him. I was so busy praying, just, you've got to accept me. <laughs> I couldn't be thinking in terms of what impression he was making on me. I was so determined to get him to be my teacher. The first words I said to him were, I want to be your disciple. Words that to me were absolutely inconceivable a week earlier, and yet that was the only thing I wanted. And I remember him saying to me then, I'm only seeing you because Divine Mother told me to. He said, I want you to know that. He said, a lady came here from Sweden two weeks ago, all the way from Sweden. She flew over wanted to see me, but Divine Mother didn't tell me to see her, so I didn't see her. But she told me to see you, so I'm seeing you. And then he asked me what I wanted, and I told him. And he didn't say much, and I didn't say anything. I said, I know you know every thought that I'm thinking. I, I know that you know how absolutely desperate I am. But if I were to say it, I'd burst into tears. So I couldn't say it. And he just sat there quietly, and I knew he was reading my mind and my life and everything. And finally he said, well, you have good karma. I will accept you. And I hastily said, oh, I don't want to be accepted just like that. I said, I can wait. <laughs> I, I didn't want to feel that I was imposing on him. And though he said, you have good karma, come join us. And he had me kneel down in front of him and uh, recite my vows of discipleship. He said, I give you my unconditional love, which is not something he normally gave, at least not very soon. I don't think anybody ever went through such a whirlwind courtship <laughs> as I went through that day. And he had me kneel in front of him and he had me say these vows of renunciation and dedication as a disciple. And he asked me to give me not only his unconditional love, my unconditional love, which of course I gave him completely, but then he said, I ask for your unconditional obedience. Well, desperate as I was, I had to be truthful. And so I said to him, Sir, what if I should ever think you wrong? And he says, I will never ask anything of you that God himself does not tell me to ask you. So I said, in that case, I give you my unconditional obedience. And I became his disciple that day. I remember him coming out onto the lecture platform um, afterwards 
and saying to the few people in the church, we have a new brother. And I've come to understand since then how much it meant to him to have met me. I have been in past lives his main support. And uh, I was Henry when he was William. And I think I was Alfonso X when he was Fernando III. And I think that in other lives too, I was a very um, necessary disciple to perpetuate his mission. But I remember one time I was standing with Herbert Freed, one of his uh, um, disciples, whom he was sending to Phoenix, Arizona, to be, um, thank you, to be his, uh, to be a minister there in the church in Phoenix. And after giving him a f few words of advice, he said, you have a great work to do. And I turned to Herbert naturally and offered my felicitations. And Master said, it's you I'm talking to, Walter. And from then on, From then on, he often told me, you have a great work to do. And uh, it was not something he wanted other people to know because he knew it would have to be a work that I would do on my own. I remember years later that telling Daya that Master had said I had a great work to do. And she said, yes, we all have a great work to do. But he made it very clear that he meant this in a very specific way with me. He, he said, you have a great work to do, therefore you must do such and such, or you must not do such and such because you have a great work to do, or don't tell people your faults of the past because you have a great work to do. Words like that again and again. And after he died, Rajashi said to me, Master has a great work to do through you, Walter, and he will give you the strength to do it. But mind you, I had no reason to feel that I was anything special spiritually. I'd rejected God most of my life. I never thought that I was anything. And yet, if he wanted it, I was willing to do anything that was necessary to serve him and to help make his work known. And in fact, it was so keenly important to me. His work, I saw, was the thing that could change civilization today. It wasn't enough that I had come to him to find God. He had brought a teaching which I knew would transform the world. And I had eagerly, I, was, I wanted to help transform the world. One time, <clears throat> he always said these things when we were alone, so you can only take my word for it. But one time, he said to me, apart from St. Lin, that means Arjashi Janakananda, he said, every man has disappointed me, and you mustn't disappoint me. And the fierceness with which he said that, as if I knew that his, he had men disciples, who had not disappointed him. But, you know, the male energy is something that goes outward. Female energy is more inward. 
And you need, for a great work, you need male energy to get out there and conquer. And I had that kind of energy, and I knew that he didn't mean that these men had disappointed him spiritually. He had many real saints among his men disciples. But he, uh, none of them seemed to have that zeal to spread his work, and he saw that in me. I have to say that I was also always torn in two directions because one part of me wanted to be a hermit. One time I remember out at 29 Palms, Master, uh, I said to Master, I've always wanted to live alone like this in the desert. And he said, that's because you've done it before. Most of those who are with me have done it many times in the past. And so I knew that that was my instinct, was to be a hermit. But the other side of that instinct totally contradicted my hermetical desires, which was a keenness to let everybody in the world know the importance of this truth. And that was the side he pushed. So one time I remember saying to Master, Sir, I don't want to have to be a lecturer. All he said by sympathy was, you'll have to learn to like it because that's what you're going to have to do. And uh, so it turned out. But one time, I remember he said that, that uh, he talked about how many ministers he had had who had allowed people's praise to go to their head. Then he said, and I, I said, sir, that's why I don't want to be a minister. And I remember the force with which he said, you will never fall due to ego. And he said it with great strength. And I do remember that really it wasn't for myself. I wanted it. I did want it for other people. In fact, one benefit that I've always had, one blessing, you might say, in lecturing in public, People say it's the one thing people tend to have the greatest fear of is lecturing in public. I never had the slightest fear. And the reason was that I figured if I'm a fool, what does it matter if people know it? <laughs> and so I was perfectly content with their thinking of me as a fool. But I knew that I had something I wanted to share with them. And that was what also kept me from getting nervous. I didn't think about what they thought of me. I thought, you need this truth. And I was eager to share it with them. So I remember one time, because I did have a certain amount of intellectual pride, not pride as a person, as a teacher, or anything like that, but I did have the pride of someone who's done a great deal of thinking and has a good brain and can out-argue anybody, and at least it seemed so to me, and I didn't like this quality. In fact, I disliked it, and I remember one time in meditation saying to me, saying to God and to Master, I'm absolutely tired of this, this pride of ego. And I said, get out! With all the force that I could possibly muster, and all of a sudden, I felt complete, completely free of any such tendency. 
And I remember I came from my meditation that evening, and Master was standing above the tennis courts looking out over Los Angeles. So I went and touched his feet, and he tapped me on the head. He said, very good. But always, fortunately for me, that has not been a problem of mine because I figure that really, um, what do I matter anyway? So it's been a sort of a tussle in a way, but I've not had that problem of thinking I'm better than anyone else because I can, I can argue better than others. So anyway, as I went further in Master's teachings, he kept talking to me. I remember Tara saying he told you more about other people in this organization than he's told anybody else. She was marveling at it, but he talked to me at great length in private when we were out of the desert and different times. And I remember wonderful occasions, too. I remember one time he was editing the Bhagavad Gita. I had been helping him editing it, too. But I was sitting at his feet and just thinking, what a blessing it is to be this man's disciple. And when he finished his work, he asked me to help him to his feet. And then he stood just like this in front of me, and he looked at me with deep love, and he said, just a bulge of the ocean. And he never allowed anything to be credited to him if he was beautiful, it was because he was an expression of that same one God. He never took credit. Whenever I saw him, it used to hurt me to hurt him. Because if, I, if he had to scold me for anything, which he had to do sometimes, I would look into his eyes <clears throat> and I would think, what a, what a sad thing it is to force him to talk like this because I saw that he didn't want to talk to me like that. He talked with great love. There was never anger in his eyes, never a touch of it. He was always the sweetest, kindest, most lovable human being I have ever met. But in his presence, I used to feel transformed. And you know, I'm quite short-sighted. I used to be. I've had this operation on my eyes. Now I can see you just like a hawk. <laughs> but uh, at that time I couldn't and uh, <clears throat> he looked at me from across the room and it wasn't the expression on his face it was an actual power that just overwhelmed me with tears because I could feel his love and it was just complete and I remember one time when I was with him and there was a uh, uh, there'd been a heavy rainstorm and there were potholes in the road. Well, that wasn't my job at that time. But he was talking to some of the boys who would have to be cleaning those and filling those potholes. So he wasn't talking about anything that particularly touched me. And I just used to close my eyes and try to feel his presence. And the bliss that overcame me was, I can't describe it was just heavenly. In fact, it was a very slightly disconcerting thing to me that whenever he talked to a group of us, his eyes were always focused on me. 
And I thought if only he'd not look at me, I would be able to close my eyes and feel his presence. But he also wanted me to learn his teachings and to spread his teachings. He said, you have a great work to do, and that great work was spreading his work. I was his disciple. I wasn't the disciple of anybody else. He never used to talk to me in organizational terms. He talked to me in terms of teachings that needed to be shared. He talked to me in terms of teachings that needed to be <clears throat> explained to people. What amazed me, <clears throat> because as I said, I was somewhat intellectual, and I had done a lot of studying and so on, and it amazed me to see that every single big theological question that had been a part of Christianity for 2,000 years, every single one, somehow he addressed it. He couldn't have known those things, and yet he did know them. He talked from a level of wisdom that was not at all learning. Everything he said touched the deep controversies of history and religion, not only in Christianity, but throughout all religions. <clears throat> when he talked about the history of religion, it was very interesting to show how each teacher he said, nobody has contradicted anybody else if they are true teachers. They have sometimes said things differently, but only because the needs were different. For example, Buddha came at a time when people were too much devoted to what was known in India at the time as karmakand, or those kinds of ceremonies which will give you a certain amount of uh, power to become, uh, uh, to overcome your enemies, to have children, to all the different things people want. And Buddha said that the important thing is not what God will do for you, it's what you will do to become worthy of God. It was important in those days for people to be told what they had to do and not just wait for God's blessings, as a result of which Buddha's teachings were, in a way, contrary to the Vedas, not to the Vedas, but to the way people understood the Vedas. But the trouble with Buddhist method was, and there's always difficulty, people always find some way to misunderstand these great teachers. And so their misunderstanding of Buddha was that if we have to do it, then there is no God to make it possible for us. And so, not Buddha. Buddha was far from being an atheist. But Buddhists became atheists. And the Buddhist philosophy was that there is no God, and <clears throat> you must do it all. And therefore, Swami Shankaracharya came to correct that. And his correction was that, yes, there is a God, but that God is not the <clears throat> is not the uh, figure of Ganesha or Kali or Krishna or Vishnu or all the different forms of gods that the Indian pantheon had evolved, that God was and is Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, 
ever, well, I, he didn't say ever knew. That was something Master added. So ever existing, ever conscious bliss. Well, then people began to think that God is nothing but abstraction. And so they stopped thinking in terms of God with devotion. And Vedanta philosophy became a matter of <clears throat> no devotion, just theory. And so um, other saints came along gradually talking about the need to love God. And even though God is beyond form, as Swami Shah, as a um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu Prabhu used to say, Harernam, 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 Kevalam, only through the, the chanting of God's name can you find liberation. But he didn't mean chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Chanting God's name was is something much deeper than that. It means that your whole being vibrates with the sound of Om. You can only find you can only find liberation by uniting yourself with that infinite um, vibration of Om. Through Om, you reach Krishna consciousness, Jaikutasta Chaitanya. Through that, you can become one with the infinite spirit. And so what, Krishna, what Chaitanya was saying was geared to an age, mind you, and this is something that we need to talk about today, that there have been ups and downs in civilization when people have been more aware and less aware. During those times, people were less aware. And so it was necessary to talk a little bit around the truth rather than try to explain things that would be not understandable. And so when Chaitanya talked of Haridnam, only God's name, he meant the infinite Om. And that was the true <coughs> teaching, although it seems that he was saying just take the name of God as a name, as Krishna and Rama and so on. You know, I was in San Francisco during the times when the Hare Krishna movement began <clears throat> and Prabhupada, Swami Bhaktivedanta, he was the person in uh, who brought that teaching to the West. He was a good man. I knew him. He was also a bigot, and he didn't have wisdom. And I remember him one time even saying to me that Ramakrishna was a fool. I said, what are you saying? He said he used to worship the Divine Mother. He didn't worship Krishna. I said he also worshipped Krishna. He worshipped God in all forms. Oh, okay. Anandamuhima was a fool. I said, what are you saying? He said the same thing. I said, I've often heard her singing Maha Mantra. Oh, okay. He didn't dare say what he really wanted to say, which was that my guru was a fool, because my guru taught that God is not personal, but impersonal and infinite. <clears throat> but I don't like to argue, especially with old men. So I just got up and Namaskar and left and never came back. But he used to like having me there 
because I spoke Bengali and we were able to converse and so on. The thing is that I, I found that his teaching, that if you keep singing, as he, he believed in what Chaitanya had said, and he, if you will chant the name of God, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll become perfect. And I remember Allen Ginsberg, whose name most of you know, he said to me one time that Prabhupada had said to him, where have I gone wrong? Because he saw these people whom he accepted, criminals, people of all types. He accepted them because he thought, he believed this absolute dogma that if you will take the name of Krishna, you will become perfect. And these remained criminals. They were not perfected. And the answer is that it is not enough. I remember a story of Ramakrishna with his disciples going to a Vaishnava meeting, and they said it was a very lackluster affair. It isn't what you do outwardly. It isn't the particular prayer you utter. It's your heart that needs to be purified. And because they had not purified their hearts, they remained what they were. Don't think that any magic will take you to God. You have to perfect yourself. Buddha was right. You have to perfect it with the grace of God. Because, I mean, uh, <clears throat> Shankaracharya was right. All these great masters have been right, but they have tried to correct mistakes in the teaching of their teachings, in the, the teachings of the disciples of these great masters. They have to correct that. And Master showed how each one had come to correct in some way some misunderstanding that had occurred in religion before him. There is never contradiction among those who know God. There cannot be. There's one God, and when you know him, you know him. These great masters all taught the same truth. There is one truth in the entire universe, and its name is Sanatana Dharma, or eternal religion. What is that eternal religion? That everything has come out of God, and everything must merge back into God sooner or later. Our goal in life, and this is something, the next thing I wanted to touch on, Master <clears throat> improved on that statement, Satchitananda, that God is existence and consciousness and conscious bliss. <clears throat> he said he is also ever new bliss. And this is a wonderful teaching. If you will meditate on that simple addition, ever new bliss, you will find that that is the explanation for why God has even created this whole universe. <clears throat> he wants, the nature of bliss is to want to express itself. The nature of bliss is to want to expand itself because God is ever new bliss. He's always wanting to bring about new expressions. <clears throat> and another wonderful thing happened to me one night. I was in Florence, Italy. We'd been talking to our publishers. And at night, that night, I woke up with a sudden 
real insights. And I looked for some paper to write on. I had nothing in my bag. Usually hotels have notepaper. There was no notepaper there. All I found was the paper doily under a toothbrush glass. And so I wrote in tiny letters that I could read at least. And I wrote this thought that everybody in the universe is seeking that same bliss. And this is why we should love everybody. It's not that anybody is looking for something different. All human beings, the worst mafioso, is looking for bliss. The only problem with it is he doesn't know where to find it. And he thinks he'll find it in power. He thinks he'll find it in revenge. He thinks he'll find it in money. But everybody in the world is seeking that same bliss. And yes, it takes a few incarnations to learn where that bliss lies. And when I say a few incarnations, I might expand that to say a few days of Brahma, because it, it takes a long time. People are so stupid in their ignorance. And so they go forever until finally they begin to understand. It's like that story that I love to tell about a young man in boot camp in the Second World War. He was learning to be a soldier. And he found pieces of paper on the ground to pick it up. No, this isn't it. This isn't it. This isn't it. And finally, he just kept doing that to the point where they decided that they really ought to um, send this boy in to be examined by the camp psychiatrist. And so he went to the camp psychiatrist, and while the camp psychiatrist was asking him such questions, so when did this begin and so on, all he did was pick up paper off the papers off the desk. This isn't it. This isn't it. Finally, the psychiatrist recommended him for a medical discharge. And as soon as the young boy got this medical discharge in his hands, he said, this is it. <laughs> and he, he ran out. And so it is that we can make many mistakes. But finally, when we understand that the goal of life is bliss, Suddenly, life takes on a wholly different meaning. When I understood that from Master, I realized that's why saints are willing even to dedicate their lives to die as martyrs. I would be proud to die as a martyr because the only thing I want is to help other people to find that life. So, this is what Master's teachings taught me. And he told me, your life, your work in this life is editing, writing, lecturing. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you my first lecture. That was rather a, uh, something of a shock. I'd been with him eight months. I was still 22 years old. And Saturday morning, I knew who was going to teach in which church because my job at that time was to send the announcements to the churches to say who would be speaking in which church. And I knew that Master had been announced to lecture in the San Diego church that next Sunday. I also knew that he hadn't been there for at least two months and that everybody had been told 
to look in the newspaper and see when his name was announced because that's when he would be there. And when I sent in this newspaper announcement to the San Diego Union saying that Master would be there the next Sunday, I was thinking with, with great joy what a wonderful thing it would be for all of those people finally to have Master again there. Saturday morning, Bernard, one of the older ministers, came to my room. He said, Master can't go. He wants you to go at his place. Well, you put yourself in that position. <laughs> Here I was, 22. I had never lectured in public in my life. I wasn't so worried about me. I was thinking about those poor people. What a disappointment it would be for them. And I remember that when I came out there, the church was, of course, absolutely filled. People were hanging in through the windows. People were looking through the front door. People were standing all around. It was as packed as it possibly could be. <clears throat> and we used to have a closed curtain. So when the curtain opened there, instead of the master, was this little 22-year-old. Well, I was so sorry for those poor people. I didn't have a chance to feel nervous for myself. I just thought these poor people, what a disappointment. But they were gracious. I guess meditation had made them that way. So nobody got up and walked out. But it was quite a thing. And even worse than that for me was that afterwards he had me give Kriya initiation to somebody. And I had only attended one Kriya initiation in my life. And again, this was even worse than, I was thinking Kriya initiation is so important. And here, I've got to get this Kriya. Anyway, somehow I survived the day. They survived the day. I'm still alive. <laughs> I don't know quite how. But I have to say that lecturing was not the same kind of terror that it is for other people. But when he said, your job is also writing, then I protested. And I said, sir, haven't you yourself already written all the books that are needed in order to, <clears throat> in order to uh, spread this teaching, to explain this teaching? He looked a bit shocked. He said, don't say that. Much more is needed. And I came to realize over the years, and this was the reason it was such a great blessing to me to be flung out on my ear by his organization. I tell you, it was not an easy experience because I wasn't doing anything to promote me. I was trying to promote him, but they figured it must all be my colossal ego that would make me so eager to spread his teachings. And so without... I, they left me with the money in my wallet, stranded in New York, where I knew no one. And I was told that I had to just get any job that I get, that would came along and live on my own. From now on, they said, we want to forget that you ever lived. It was a great test for me. But I found in the end that it was the greatest blessing that could ever have come because then they told me not to do anything in his name. We don't want the world to know what a disgraceful disciple he had. 
Those are the words they addressed to me. But I thought there's one thing I cannot do, and that is nothing. And so I had to do something. And in that effort to try to find what I could do, I remember one day there was this couple who were, um, they'd invited my parents up the road to a cocktail party or something or other like that. When I went to their cocktail parties, I would drink water and pretend it was gin. But uh, I, I, uh, I remember I went to this. First of all, I said, no, I didn't want to go. Then I thought, what is my alternative? To lie on my bed and stare at the ceiling and pray for death? That's all I could do in those days. And I said, no, I might as well do at least something and see if Master has any answer. And so I went to this party, and there I met a Bengali couple. And we began talking Bengali, and uh, they were surprised that I knew knew a lot more than just how are you and uh, something like that. I, I could converse in Bengali. And so they became quite excited. And they said, well, what is your name? And I said, well, my name is Kasami Kriyananda. He said, oh, Swami Kriyananda, we have your recordings. You have to come and uh, sing for an event that we are performing for Mahatma Gandhi's, uh, is it death or, or birth? I don't remember. October 7th. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, something to do with Gandhi. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> he, I, I, I had been told never to speak again. So I just thought, well, I... I mustn't, and so I didn't. And so he didn't take that no for an answer. Usually people would take that as an answer. Instead, he kept calling me every day. Would you please? Could you please? You must come. I insist that you come. And again and again, until finally I thought, well, I'm not getting any other advice. I'm not getting any other guidance. So let me go. And so I sang for their event. I think I sang Ramdun. Anyway, <clears throat> again, this sort of thing never happened. But at the same event, two groups of people came to me afterwards and said, oh, you've got to come and sing for our church. And uh, so I said, well, okay. Well, it turned out that this Bengali gentleman was the head of a, a religious organization, Cultural Integration Fellowship he called it. And he was a very fine man, and so was his wife. Anyway, they got me back into teaching. And one thing that absolutely astounded me was that, miserable as I was, what people got from me when I spoke or sang for them was joy. And I thought, joy? That's the one thing I don't feel. And yet I realized that under the sands of all that personal agony, there was this joy that never left me due to my years of meditation. Anyway, um, I did talk at those things. I did find myself gradually drawn into um, public work. And I was always looking for ways that would not be a conflict with SRF. I wanted to, I didn't want to conflict with them. They were my own organization. Even if they rejected me, they couldn't get rid of me that easily. 
I felt this is my guru's work, this is my work. And I couldn't stop loving them. I thought, why, why allow other people's treatment of me change my attitude toward them? So I always have loved them. But the, the uh, as I was trying to find different ways, I remember I was up at Yosemite, <clears throat> and I used to study voice, and I had a good voice. And so the last day before I left, I saw a couple of young men sitting on the railing of a bridge singing with a guitar, and singing badly, I have to say. And I felt in the mood to sing. So I said, would you like me to sing something for you? Well, of course, I couldn't sing any Indian bhajan. I couldn't sing any of the classical Western songs. I mean, they were playing with a guitar. I imagine they didn't know Italian and German and all that. But on the other hand, <clears throat> um, the one song I could think of that wasn't something like Drunk Last Night, Drunk the Night Before. <laughs> it, ha it, it was a Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And that's a beautiful Negro spiritual. So I sang that, and they got all excited, and they said, oh, you've got to come and sing for our, our party we're having tonight. So I sang, and again, Swing Low Sweet Chariot. What else did I know? And the next day I was driving home, <clears throat> and uh, I thought it would be a wonderful thing if I could sing. SRF isn't doing this kind of thing. It would be serving master but without competing with them. And so I decided to, uh, that it would be lovely if I could sing. But then I thought, oh, what am I going to sing? I didn't know any songs that said what the kind of message I wanted to deliver, which was Master's teachings. And so I said, Divine Mother, what can I do? All of a sudden, this song popped into my mind. And it was fully blown. Music, words, everything. And I stopped at a milkshake stand and wrote it all down on a piece of paper. And <clears throat> I wrote a few more songs that same month. And I got a, a book called Pete Singer's Folk Singer's Guitar Guide. And uh, with that, I began studying to play the guitar. And I hadn't been doing this for a month when somebody from that first church that had invited me to come and speak and sing for them they invited me to come and sing a concert of my songs. And uh, I was dumb enough to say, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> of course, when you've been playing the guitar less than a month, you have to say you are not an expert. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I thought at least it'll force me to practice. So for a whole week, I practiced the guitar like mad. My fingers were all blistered. But... Uh, when I got to the concert hall, there were 200 people there. It was completely filled. And they had turned the lights out. The only light that there was was a, light, a candle behind me. And if there was one thing I absolutely and desperately needed was to be able to see those strings. I couldn't do anything. So anyway, I somehow I managed to pull it off. Don't ask me how. Stories, I suppose, songs, I don't know. Anyway, people did enjoy it. And uh, afterwards, somebody said to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a music major in college. And he said, there were some 
pretty interesting chords you use there. I said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, from then on, you might say that my musical career was launched, and now I've written over 400 pieces of music and instrumentals as well as vocal and so on. But in these ways, I tried to serve my guru without ever um, obstructing anything that SRF might do. And Master had wanted to start communities. And I remember the force with which he, he talked about communities. I remember at the Myers party in Beverly Hills in 1949, and he said, this day marked the beginning of a new era, and my word shall not die. This truth shall sow it. I'm sowing these truths in the ether, and these were my words shall not die. He said, thousands of youths, and I never heard such a powerful lecture in my life. I'm only giving you a tiny touch of it. But people who now say he changed his mind, you can't talk like that. And change your mind. This was a this was a very deep intention of his was to start communities like Ananda. And uh, I, after that lecture, I vowed I would do what I could to start communities myself. And because when I asked Ayamata, when are we going to start communities? Her answer was. Frankly, I'm not interested. So I thought, okay, if they're not interested, I am. I'll do this too. And so bit by bit, I added things that I could do that would not be a conflict with anything they were doing. For example, I read an article in Spam, uh, Spam magazine. It was the USIS magazine for... Um, uh, India. And there they talked about the modern philosophy of meaninglessness and uh, that there can be no God and etc. etc. And I, who had studied these things in depth, I knew the answer. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to answer these things. So this, only a month before I was thrown out on my ear, I already had the answer of what I really wanted to do with my life. I wanted to take people in their doubts and help them to understand, here is the truth. And so I went to the library. I read up on all these people. I had to keep my mind open because you can't answer an intelligent argument by just saying it isn't so. I had to see these truths from their point of view. And that was how I wrote the Out of the Labyrinth. To me, it is still one of my most important books. It is not a devotional book, but it answers questions which atheists and materialists have had. And it answers them in their own terms. And I think that the arguments I have given are impeccable. You can't answer them. Anyway, that was one book that I devoted 16 years to research in order to write what I had to say on that subject. It was not easy, I have to say. I had to go into the camp of the enemy 
I had to listen to arguments that I knew were false, but I had to understand their falseness from inside, not outside. I had to use their own arguments against them. There's no point in bringing in my arguments against them. But from their point of view, I showed them to be a false teaching. And so over the years, I have gradually built what you know today. And I've written about 140 books and over 400 pieces of music. I've given countless thousands of talks in many languages because fortunately I have grown up speaking several languages, so languages come to me easily. But it has been for me a great blessing, and I'm giving a personal testimony today. I want to know that this change that we see in the world today, the change toward greater spirituality, the change toward greater um, understanding of the need for God, this is becoming greater and greater in my lifetime. And how much of that is due to my effort, I cannot say. But I know that I've done my very best to help bring this about. And I hope I have had some success. I know a relative of mine was studying a book in a reading class that she and a group of women had. And uh, she was thrilled to see that the, the uh, source book that they were using was my book on money magnetism. Again and again, I have seen these things. The purpose of Ananda is twofold. To offer a way of life where everybody can find a life that is peaceful, harmonious, sensible, that works and that will bring more peace on earth than any shouting slogans at peace marches. I remember I was in Assisi, and there was a priest there who saw me dressed in blue. And he said, well, what is this blue you're wearing? I said, it's a new monastic order that I have founded. He said, how many members have you got? I said, one. <laughs> But now we have 500, and this new renunciate order showing the positive side of renunciation, not the giving up and giving up and giving up, but the embracing of samadhi and positive values. I think <clears throat> this is one of the most important things God has succeeded in doing through me. And I do urge all of you to read that book, because I think you will find that, yes, you do want God, and yes, you want him to the extent that you're willing to dedicate as much of yourself as you can to him. And the more you read about this, I think the more you will find, as many people have found already, yes, I can do these things. Renunciates are no different from other people. They are all, we are all seeking God. There is only one search that all humanity wants. To avoid pain, yes, but to find bliss. We were put on this planet to find who we are and to discover that our true nature is such an under. 
ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And there's another aspect to that ever-new bliss, and that is that bliss is expressed differently in a very real sense by every being in this world, every being in this universe. As Master said in Autobiography of a Yogi, every atom is dowered with individuality. Each one, when he finds God, finds a unique aspect of bliss and expresses it in a unique way. It's an incredible thought. But remember, as the song in the 1940s used to go, there will never ever be another you. <laughs> There'll never be another you. You are a unique expression of that infinite bliss. And your goal in life is to find not what some church leader tells you you should have. You should discover for yourself your own nature as bliss, and it will be particular. You know, people are imitative, but you never find two saints alike. Every saint is in some way unique, and you, when you find who you are as a child of God, you will find that uniqueness too. You will find him expressed uniquely as you. We are coming to a time, and are already in it, when mankind is discovering more and more the absolute importance of learning who and what we are. Our nature is the very...